and welcome to Stop Button Favorites, a podcast of the website thestopbutton.com. My name is Andrew Wycliffe. My website is thestopbutton.com. Stop Button Favorites is a monthly podcast. comes out the 20th of every month. Each month is a new commentary track of a film I've written about on the Stop Button. I pick some of the movies. Readers of the site pick some of the other movies. This episode is going to be about The Razor's Edge, directed by Edmund Goulding. It was suggested by, and Cliff, I'm sorry if I butcher your last name, Cliff Alaperti, who writes at ImmortalEphemera.com. He's a classic film blogger. Cliff and I recently both contributed to the Thoughts on the Thin Man book that Danny Reed put together. I'm watching the 2005 Studio Classics release of The Razor's Edge. That's the Fox Classics release. It was when they were doing a lot of nice... um, A lot of nice DVD releases for their classic films, something they've stopped doing, which is too bad. It stars Tyrone Power, Gene Tierney, and Ann Baxter, I think. Could be totally wrong about the Ann Baxter, but we'll find out in a couple seconds, because we're starting right now. As a kid, I was almost entirely unaware there were classic Fox movies. I knew about Fox because of Star Star Wars, and I watched those all the time and was very familiar with the opening logo, but I had no idea how many classic films it is, Ann Baxter, for those keeping track of me being right or wrong, um, how many of those classic films they'd done. I mean, it was, it might have even been after I started getting into AMC, which is where I saw The Razor's Edge for the first time after high school. I remember I used to try to track down other Lamar Trotty adaptations back when I was watching a much more focused uh, group of films. sort of hopping from film to film based on someone um, related to it. And then uh, Ben Nye does some of the makeup. Of course, I can't stop myself from thinking Ben Nye, science guy, whenever I see his name in credits, which is often. I love that. Long intervals. Very deft transition there, too. I don't... Looks like the roof was where they they cut it. This, of course, takes place, I believe, in um, the Chicago area. And I, of course, am, am from the Chicago area, so I always found it interesting. When I started watching classic movies um, in my late teens, I, I think it was immediately 
I had started a job in downtown Chicago after working at a video store. And, of course, at the video store I had endless supply of um, videos. But I tended to concentrate on more modern things just based on uh, my coworkers' recommendations. Clifton Webb is such a wonderful addition to any film. I remember getting off track just for a second. Um, Mr. Be- the Mr. Belvedere series. Uh, my my friend's dad was a, a big fan of those, even though he hadn't seen necessarily seen The Razor's Edge or Laura. I think he'd probably seen Laura. He's seen lots of movies, but it, that's how it worked. Um, I talked a lot about what movies I had seen on AMC and people told me what else to see. But Razor's Edge was, I mean, maybe I saw it because Gene Tierney was in it because I saw Lever to Heaven rather early in the uh, AMC days, which actually really only consisted of a couple years, but I was probably watching seven or eight movies a week. Is it necessary to tell the author of the book all of their private affairs? I can't remember if that's in the novel, but... I really should figure out um, what Mom thought of this movie sometime. But when I started watching classic movies, there was a certain apprehension, because I was familiar with some of them. Uh, The Thin Man's, the classic universal horror movies. Um, But then I sort of jumped to Hitchcock in the, the 50s. Oh, it's such a wonderful introduction to the cast. I haven't seen this since I wrote about it for the stop button, which would have been about, oh, I don't know, nine, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, because I I watched it relatively soon to when the DVD came out in 2005. And that's the thing is that when you have a set, when you're constricted to sets, no matter how much you spend on the sets, no matter how big the sets are, this set actually reminds me of Wolf a little, the end of Wolf, but the sets require you to bring in or allow you to bring in all the cast members in a far more natural way than um, location shooting can. Um, You just think about the depth in location shooting. and I mean, if you look at how Goulding's shooting this, he's got four layers here. He's got 
our front um, one, two, three, four, maybe even five layers because you saw the, the weight staff uh, moving around under the uh, below the deck. I wonder if he keeps this up, Goulding, I mean, if he if he keeps up the depth of the direction. He might. The uh the apprehension soon went away. It started because when I watched classic movies as a kid, someone tended to be showing them to me or I was like my parents were watching them with friends or family, and so I, I joined into that activity. It, it wasn't until after high school that I, it wasn't until the AMC period that I really tried to discover classic film on my own. I know all this information about um, I remember the first time I saw that monologue describing Larry. I had no idea what was going to happen in Razor's Edge. Um, Late 40s... Well, the late 40s doesn't have a lot of mysticism in it um, or supernatural mainstream stuff in studio productions. That sort of seems to me to have died out in the mid-30s. But I've been seeing all these movies, you know, movies from the 29, 28, 29, 38, 48, 51, and back, um, all mixed together. So it probably didn't occur to me. that the late 40s had a very different um, interest in the supernatural. It, it wasn't there. So, But as I, I had just seen the old dark house, which scared the crap out of me when I was a, a AMC period. And... So I had I had learned I just learned that I could not know what to expect from a classic movie just because there wasn't language violence or nudity. For quite a while, I, I, I concentrated on seeing black and white movies. I'm not sure. Why exactly? 
because I knew I liked them. You know, I knew I liked them from Thin Man. I knew I liked them from the Universal Horror Movies. One of the first things I, I bought uh, once I was buying Laserdiscs myself when I was working downtown Chicago was the Myrna Loy box set, which I still don't think all of it's out from Warner Archive. But there was – I was seeing a bunch of movies I – at best only heard about, like Manhattan Melodrama, which I probably didn't hear about until that year, because this is before the internet. Unless you sat and read all of Leonard Malton, you picked this stuff up uh, from mentions in articles, books, other people talking, something you happen to catch on TV. And I didn't have TCM at this point. Uh, TCM didn't come to whatever cable provider we had until a few years later. Of course, AMC was still good back then. This is Tyrone Power's first scene where he really makes an impression. Seeing Tyrone Power in a tuxedo saying he wants to loaf is kind of amazing. Um... One of the other things about um, going into classic movies so far removed from them is that you don't have in, any of the built-in uh, preconceptions of actors uh, that Tyrone Power was less popular later in his career or something had no bearing on how I approached Razor's Edge. It would be the same thing if, you know... Well, I mean, if you only knew John Travolta from Pulp Fiction to Battlefield Earth, uh, something like that. This uh, Razor's Edge, of course, has some sympathies to uh, Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, and that's... Um, 
I'm trying to remember when I first saw Ambersons. I know my dad had the CLV Criterion disc of it. I haven't seen it in 20 years, which is really too bad. Love that edit. Did you see that? So, I do know when I first saw this movie, I recognized how long the sequence was. And how... It actually gives me hope for the, uh, what is it, the Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs movie, in some ways. Um, That's going to be the three... The long sequences. So, one thing about World War One stuff is that I'm not sure if I had read a lot about World War One at this point. Probably not. I might have seen a couple other movies about it. But since I studied it in um, undergrad, coming back to the movie subsequent times adds all sorts of uh, layers to it that I couldn't have gotten my first time out. Though I might have seen Paths of Glory by this time when I first saw this. That's entirely possible. It's also entirely possible that I didn't. I can't remember if Gene Tierney and Tyrone Power did another movie together. I read the book immediately following seeing the movie that Razor's Edge was like a huge hit in 46. It, um... It puts it in sort of the the Godfather category of popular American film uh, being good too. I'm not sure when I would say that genre died, but I bet you could figure it out through Box Office Mojo. But I read the book and I remember there was a lot more information about the American Express and him picking up his mail. And I thought it was really cool to to discover that's where the, the brand came from.
even when Clifton Webb's a villain, um, he's so incredibly likable, like in Laura. Wait, I didn't just spoil Laura, never mind. Excuse me. Now we've got, you know, the deep frame again. Two layers. The natural way that they integrate mom into this is... So, I mean, seeing it the first time, I wouldn't have known that he was the writer of the novel. I mean, maybe I did, or maybe I was aware of it, but I had certainly not read the book yet. I hadn't thought about it. I, I didn't know that in the, the remake, which I think I had heard of, the, the not the remake, the re-adaptation with Bill Murray, I think I'd heard of it, but not seen it or had any interest in seeing it, I, I later found out from someone I worked with that they cut the mom character out of the re, uh, the readaptation. The idea that Elliot is going to lock up this huge house. Did Herbert Marshall and Richard Burton ever do a movie together? That would have been amazing. Just the layers of the narrative are fantastic. And I feel like it'd be very hard to do this sort of arrangement today just because the agreement between audiences and movies is so much different. In some ways, you know, the modern movie is, it's like audiences think they deserve more responsibility for reading the movie, whereas here Goulding is... Very precise. Look at that backdrop. Oh, I love it.
I mean, that's one of the most tragic things about this story and the film is that Gene Tierney's Isabel is pretty awesome. So... There's, um, there's that element of tragedy later. What's funniest about, uh, not funniest, but Razor's Edge is incredibly readable, the book. Um, and it took me forever to get through of human bondage. Again, we're in Elliot's recollections of this. Oh, the dialogue is just so good. Sorry. It's hard not to just watch Clifton Webb. Now we're back on a a set. Seems like she only got here last scene. I think I probably read uh, Movable Feast at this point. So I had some context for the American in Paris. But I, you just can't create this shot uh, on location. I, I've probably told this story somewhere before, but when I went to the Block Museum's film series, my wife and I used to go to that a lot, and my dad, I'm trying to remember, I, I think we might have drugged my mom once. Maybe even my sister. Not sure for what. But they it's at Northwestern and they show – there's like a projectionist club and they, they show uh, film series. And one of the things they showed was Gantz's Napoleon and it was presented by a history professor who said uh, 
the cla- the silent drama is like a different medium than the speaking drama. And so the, the studio picture of the late 40s is a, is a different uh, medium from one of the than a cinemascope movie than a 70s movie, you know, and it's picking up on seeing where the movie is and sort of the development of cinema. And you can look at what is it's taken from before and what it's going to give to the future, but it's part of this movie is from 1946 and not really arguing some sort of classic movie relativism um, because it's a, there's no prime directive of, of classic movie watching, but Goulding's and Daryl F. Zanuck's artistic intent isn't different necessarily than, say, Scott Rudden and Wes Anderson's. It's the tools they have to present these uh, artistic ambitions are completely different. When you when you say all film is the same because, you know, it's in a theater or whatever, that's not accurate. There's too many nuances to how a film's made to... Um, not have a specific sense of how to um, digest it. If mom actually was um, idealistic about this this type of personage emerging after World War II, she must have been incredibly disappointed. And of course, there's the context that Tyrone Power was a, a World War II veteran. Who this was his first movie after coming home, and it's a movie about a guy coming home from World War One. Um, that audiences would have had to play into it. That it was a zeitgeist movie is in, in, incredibly interesting. Who shot this? I wish I paid attention. Did you see the focus come in on Gene Tierney's face for the turn and then leave for the turn back? Goulding also directed A Human Bondage, the 46 version, I think. It's the, it's the same year as this. I think it's 46. And here we go. The focus is coming back. Ugh. 
so good. I was really into uh, Grapes of Wrath around this time, too, and I was talking to a friend of mine who I worked with at the video store, and he was not a fan of John Ford. Uh, and we got into a discussion about Greg Toland shooting Grapes of Wrath versus Greg Toland shooting Citizen Kane. And I actually always think that there's more of a Orson Welles influence on John Ford than others might. If you watch The Fugitive with Henry Fonda, it's it's like watching a Welles movie. These guys using all sorts of different tools. It's just... And then, of course, Gene Tierney makes everybody want to be a fashion expert, which hopefully is as um, sexist as I'll get on this commentary. Um, I actually think I remember that outfit on Gene Tierney from when I was 17 or 18. I remember when I first saw uh, Some Like It Hot, my mom was – I was, you know, eight or nine. My dad and I rented the Laserdisc from – Blockbuster, because the Blockbuster we went to to get me Godzilla versus Megalon or whatever had laser discs, and then my dad got a laser disc player and set off my laser disc thing ten years later, and my DVDs, and thankfully I've jumped off that ship with a Blu-ray, and I'm much more sparing in my my purchases. But I remember my mom asked my dad what I thought of Marilyn Monroe after seeing Some Like It Hot. Like, had it zonked my mind as a 9 or 10-year-old. But I would have been younger than that. I would have been like 8. <laughs> um, <laughs> but of course, d g discovering Gene Tierney is... Because I'd heard of her. Um, and I think the first Gene Tierney movie I saw was Leave It to Heaven. But I was only seeing stuff like MGM Classics. I wasn't really a big Clark Gable fan. Uh, even now that I am a Clark Gable fan, I still haven't seen a lot of Clark Gable movies. I did see quite a few Tyrone Power movies. But it was Leave It to Heaven. And Leave It to Heaven has that terrible performance. Is it Cornell Wilde? can't remember his name. And it was funny because I, like I said, I was talking to people about the movies I'd seen. Um, so I was telling my mom I'd watch Leave It to Heaven. I, I, I think I actually told my mom what I thought of movies. I remember I did it with Wolf, but apparently I also did it with uh, Leave It to Heaven. And she was commenting on um, Cornell Wilde's performance and... Um, Then we were talking about Gene Tierney. So I saw Laura. I saw this. I saw Leave Her to Heaven. I saw uh, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. All in the same two-year period, I'd say, at the most. I 
I'd argue that this, the use of depth in this scene is totally different um, because it hasn't, it's not important. It's all sort of one layer and they just happen to be part of that layer. I guess AMC must have had a lot of Fox movies because I saw Anastasia back then too and Peyton Place and um, Wild River, which I'll have on a, a later commentary podcast. I don't think that guy's singing. I never got Razor's Edge on Laserdisc. I'm not sure why. Maybe there wasn't one. High culture to low culture. Very uh, discreet transition. Curious to see if Larry's actually going to be any more engaged here. Yep. I saw where the sidewalk ends, too. That's the Gene Tierney uh, reteaming with Dane Andrews. It's terrible. See, it was low culture. That's why there was a fight by sa with sailors. But that's a perfect uh, example of how you can be obvious, and it doesn't really matter if you're obvious as long as you're doing it really well, which Goulding does. Here's where we start to see... Some of the evil Isabel we'll see later. 
I think in the novel, Larry spends the night at this point. Can't quite remember. I, I think I read the book twice, uh, which is uncommon. There's a number of books I read in high school that I have not been back to and I've been meaning to get back to since, you know, I was 19. Yeah, Larry definitely spends the night in the book. I was able to talk to my aunt and grandmother a lot about classic movies, too. Have the Red Shoes been made yet? 46. When's the Red Shoes? I'm actually going to look this up. I'm a little curious. Because that sequence right there Red Shoes is 48. Red Shoes is two years after this. That's very surprising. Maybe he doesn't spend the night in the book. Great sound design. I mean, just great sound design. Oh, this is when he tells her. Oh, that's right. Here's our, here's our, the Emperor seduces Anakin scene. So you can't get away with that now. You can't, if you tried to get away with the villain saying how villainous they are, we've got no point where the, you know, James Bond movies, 70s exploitation, has just gotten it to such an exaggerated point that we've lost this storytelling device. I was shocked that I was seeing this in a movie from the 40s when I saw this the first time.
Middle Western horse sense. Oh, look at that shot. Razor's Edge is a great movie to get somebody apprehensive about classic movies into classic movies. And growing up, I was very enthusiastic about the the classic movies that I liked. The Universal movies, the Thin Man movies. And there were numerous people who just would not watch black and white movies. Uh, kids, I mean. And of course, let's not forget that um, Peter Jackson uh, had to remake King Kong because he was so upset that uh, kids refused to watch the original. And now mom is back. Mom's back at 44 minutes. So he's been gone for a half hour. Look, and there's Sophie in the background. And here she's coming in. And she stands up to him. That's why we love Sophie. And of course, I mean, her husband isn't that bad. He's an okay capitalist vet guy. It's so hard to to visualize this in any way an accurate portrayal of mom by himself. Breakfast of Champions didn't include Vonnegut, which is sort of unfortunate. So now we've got the nice transition uh, with the last time they were in Chicago together. And here Larry is disconnected from that lifestyle, uh, from that world 45 minutes in. So this is sort of like part two of The Razor's Edge. I wonder if there's a part three. A lot of French language spoken. He's in real France now. And now they've switched to English, of course. 
Oh, they're speaking English because he's German, not French. Is he a drunk or a Nazi? So here we go in part two, Tyrone Power becomes the, the lead of the film for the first time. See, the reason Razor's Edge can get away with the metaphysical is a scene like this, where you have a philosophical discussion between these two, and it turns out that this guy's been thinking too. And that probably would have been a big deal in 46, atheism in a movie. Here's the foreshadowing. We're looking at Larry and older failed Larry.
you only get away with that first thunder strike when you get to these subsequent ones. And the way they time that. And here comes the sound back again. Somebody was always really impressed with how they did that in Heat with De Niro and Pacino, but people have been doing it forever. That wasn't rear screen. It was always a set. Well, maybe it was rear screen. Just well-edited rear screen. I thought he went to India later. There's no reason matte paintings. Wow, just look at that painting. Um, that might not even. That's not a mat. That's just the wall or this this set. Um, the realism digital matte brings the CG mats and all that crap. When you're trying to look real all the time, there's nothing to appreciate. There's no artistry to it. What's different about the first Jurassic Park is it's it's designed to enthrall the viewer with its special effects, which has been entirely lost. And you gotta realize I'm watching this in ninety what seven ninety eight. With the exception of Scorsese, there's not a lot of discussion of religion in film anymore at that point, late nineties. No spiritualism. And regardless of where you stand on that issue, it is it is part of the human condition and should be dramatized. Of course, now we have tons of it, and it's crappy uh, uh, Christian movies. Chasing a buck, really. Okay, sorry. Um, By not having as diverse an audience. Okay, wow, okay, here we go. By not having as by not caring about your audience's diversity, you are able to uh, target you aren't you're not targeting so precisely that you're mercenary. That's the difference between South Korean film, mainstream film, and American film. And that's what classic movies are like. And it could be, I could be entirely wrong about South Korean film. They could be targeting diverse 
um, audiences. But since I'm not South Korean, I don't identify that. So that would be a, a British guy in India, actually. So now we're back with the rest of the cast. What a jerk doctor. I've still never seen All About Eve. Ann Baxter was in Woman in White, too, I think. Or 
Or no, that was Alexis Smith in Woman in White, wasn't it? Did she win supporting? She really should have won supporting for this. Oh, God. Goulding's now directing her the same way he directs um, Gene Tierney. Which is interesting. Especially if the way he directs Tierney changes now. But again, all that's doing is telling the viewer what's been going on when away from Larry's story. So that level of control over the viewer's experience is you don't do that anymore. You also don't wear your uh, waist that high. That would be another thing you you see in old movies is uh, the changing fashion of, of the waist. So what the the shack is real. So what it's it, that could be a matte painting. Um, I remember in the late nineties when around the time I saw this, they were using digital mats that were still. Uh, not realistic yet. Um, Mumford had a, a digital backdrop um, back when CGI, everybody was excited to use it to any degree. Screamers, of all things, did that too. They um, 
they added uh, the tops of the sets through digital uh, mats, which actually I assume they're doing in Batman versus Superman because it's all filming in uh, Detroit, but they'll have to differentiate. The difference uh, between a studio movie and something like LaRue by uh, Abel Gantz is that he actually was on the mountain, I assume. Or he just had a really great set, but I remember the mountain scene in that. Was uh, far more realistic, yet had more in common with Razor's Edge than it does with something today, than it does with Cliffhanger or something, which of course does have fake mountain sets. Um the one place people were comfortable with that was with stuntmen um, in action movies. It was actually a stuntman being James Bond, being Arnold Schwarzenegger, being whoever. Um, and, of course, then we started CGIing people's faces over the stuntmen, starting in um, Jurassic Park with Ariana Richards. But people were willing to be enthralled with the spectacle uh, while letting themselves be removed from the reality of it, which we don't have anymore. We want the reality all the time. And our stunt work is, is digitally edited, digitally composed. Um, unless, of course, you're gently and you punch too fast for the camera. See, that's Razor's Edge is kind of a character study. A little bit. I mean, in a way to technically accurate way, it's a character study. But it's it's very epical. His sideburns looked like he was shooting a western at night. I think he did a western, didn't he? Maybe one. Just the amount of sets for this is incredible. That they use him for a scene or two. Think about that French, uh, the multiple French sets and that's being able to paint
That's what that is. Versus the universal ones, which you buy into the Frankenstein monster, you buy into the fake backdrops, and you appreciate them for what how they work and the mood they lend, and you don't worry about them being necessarily as real as as possible. You don't mind seeing the filmmaking going on. Whereas now, everything's hiding the filmmaking. I think the Mr. Belvedere's are out from uh, Fox archive, which means they're really crappy prints, but I probably have them recorded off a uh, Fox movie channel anyway. I should, I should definitely see those next year. <laughs> there you go. He's waving the author into the, the story. He's been gone for 23 minutes. We're doing time transitions very deliberately but gently. Wow. So good. Wow. Exposition. Just beautifully done exposition. You get... Half pure pleasure, unfunctional pure pleasure of getting to hang out with Clifton Webb, bragging. And then you get this exposition. And now we've gone through a different door, so that is not where uh, Mom went into the... In... to the shop. <laughs> and then you get a reward for your exposition.
little bit of Niles Crane there, an early Fraser. So sympathy is the lack of selfishness is different in the novel. It's still incredibly ambitious that they try to attempt it in a, in a film. You know, it almost seems like if Razor's Edge were about British people as opposed to Americans, it'd be prime for BBC miniseries adaptation. Such a good performance from Herbert Marshall. And she's teaching her children to speak French, which will be important so they can be ambassadors someday or ambassadors' wives. So we're eight years from the first Paris scene or so. Um, don't have introductions. Well, you don't have kids without them being uh, 
more full featured characters in a film. You do on television, um, but you don't in movies. Again, it's because you're targeting a um, diverse audience or uh, you're recognizing the diversity in your audience and targeting specifically. Great makeup, too, on Herbert Marshall. Sort of discreet aging. Because Herbert Marshall didn't get a lot of close-ups earlier. I hope somebody makes a hypnosis app for the Apple Watch. Goulding and Tyrone Power went on to make Nightmare Alley where he plays a mentalist, so I wonder if they got the idea that Tyrone Power would be good at it from this one. No music, just reaction shots and incredulity, which is exactly what you'd be getting in your audience.
so many people in the scene. I love it. Interesting. Interesting little scene tag there. There's no... Nothing but to let Gene Tierney shine. Wait, is Elliot broke? No, I don't think so. Depth and composition, three layers. See, there you go. They're, they're aging, whereas Tyrone Power doesn't. And into the scene they come. So four layers, because we had that back path, so we sold the fourth layer. Evil Gene Tierney. The author telling his creation it's her business, not his. And I believe Sophie is going to be at this this club because it's about time for her to get in. So we didn't we didn't do the party at all. We didn't do dinner at all. We just exited. Here's real France because they're speaking French. And another gigantic set. Amazing set decoration on this. So many crowd scenes, too. Goulding giving all these little moments to this un, uh, uncredited cast. And it's Sophie. 
I can't remember who plays who in the Bill Murray remake. Readaptation. The Bill Murray version, sorry. I think Denholm Elliott plays Clifton Webb. You can't do this scene directed this way in anything but 133, anything but Academy. The way you can focus on a performance from an actor in, in Academy is totally different from um, 185 or 235. And if you think about it, it's because you can't do a close-up of someone's eyes. Uh, you get too much of the face in the shot, so you don't use that unless you block it out like silence would do. Let's not forget that Gray was Wow.
such a good performance from Ann Baxter. Gotta love that the band stopped for her delivery. I wonder if they shot that all with the same background players. There was that tall guy with the really short girl. I don't know. The blonde looked familiar. So, Gray's over his uh, breakdown. He's a, he's a dick now. And she's awful. And there we go. See, Herbert Marshall sort of replaced Clifton Webb in some ways at this point, but um, this is such a great scene. Diamond Power was in uh, Hotel Metropole, which I still haven't seen. That's actually out. Fox actually released a nice box set of, of 30s Tyrone Power stuff, I believe. 
but it was still, you know, 2009 or something. They were still trying. We faded the black, so I'll bet we're a month later. Yep. Here's the aloofness that uh, Herbert Marshall was talking about. That there's something seductively evil about gene tyranny. Well, I'm just flat evil right there. Love this scene construction. Just again, well, now we really don't because of cell phones. We're not going to have that sort of conversation, but it, that, that sort of went to television. It was not part of film um, vocabulary for quite a while. So here what we've got is um, Tierney now getting the sort of direction she got in part one, which um, – but it's, it's totally different. Now we have Tierney is Clifton Webb. The relationship between Herbert Marshall and Jean Tierney is now closer to the relationship between – Herbert Marshall and Clifton Webb that ah, it's 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 Clifton Webb but evil and unamusing. It's great. And I guess she wasn't the first pick. I think that um I, I thought I read it was Maureen O'Hara and she told Linda Darnell and she wasn't allowed to tell anybody, so it was Jean they gave it to Jean Tierney. Because uh, Daryl F. Zanuck was pissed off. Uh, I could be entirely wrong, but I don't think I am. And the cool thing about that is is that, well, the, the strange thing is is that with Laura, you have this wonderful tie between Gene Tierney and Clifton Webb. 
Oh, I love it. If she was wearing any old age makeup, they've taken it off. Amazing scene. I And at this point, of course, Larry's no longer the protagonist. Wow. Five people in the scene. There we go.
Larry's kind of on to it. Look at mom watching Isabel. See, it's so weird because we've gotten to this point where Larry's gone from being the enlightened one to not being enlightened enough to to prevent this tragedy. I wonder if they got along and Baxter and Gene Tierney. When you think about it, Anne Baxter only really has like five scenes in this movie. And Goulding's style has changed here. You need to stay away so Uncle Elliot and I can kill you. And it... it, Trying to imagine... 
I think Gene Tierney had a kid in Leave Her to Heaven, too, right? There's a daughter, maybe. There you go. That was Somerset Mom on the telephone, the author of the book. Wow, so evil. Look at the outfit that Jean Tierney's in now. Can you imagine her playing the villain in a sleep? Wow, just Sleeping Beauty, the Maleficent. I don't think Jean Tierney ever played like a Fate Dunaway, Betty Davis villain. I don't know if it would have worked. Here it's just so... Oh. Look how much she's drinking. So we know nothing about their actual relationship. We haven't seen it. Sophie and Larry's in private. The movie doesn't really have anything in private. We've never seen uh, Gray and Isabel together. Is she doing something with the kids? Yeah. Wow. We got some we got some more of the fading here. I gotta see who 
the focus, I'm sorry, not the fading. Fading is because, you know, that's what you would call it now. Um, the director of photography is on this. Arthur C. Miller. Oh, who shot How Green Was My Valley? Oh, he shot the Oxbow incident. Oh, wow. Okay. And look at that. Is she leaving, like, just, oh, so good. This is her test. Oh, he shot a letter to three wives, too. Oh, why, why did he retire in 51? Anyway. Can Sophie resist? Of course not. Look at that. Who wouldn't want to drink all of uh, Elliot's expensive booze? Look at the uh, change in posture. Somewhat rare use of music, which we have not had in a while. Not... Uh, what what's it been longer since music or mom narrating? What we understood Sophie and we understood American. That's the same music as the first time there. Could be. Oh, that girl was in it before.
Great set used very restrained and now See, we're coming up on two hours, but it doesn't feel like it because we're still in Razor's Edge Part 2. So doing that separation point between Isabel and Larry's engagement breaking off in her marriage to the rest of the movie, it also helps that the scenes are very long. Even in this tiny um, cafe, opium den, whatever, you've got this large background cast going on. Is that woman pregnant? Again, Kind of impossible to imagine. Shifting attention to her should be some very, um, but she's coming back, so it's almost like, is she going to, is the movie going to follow her to, well, we just brought Tyrone Power right back in. Little bit of music, fade to black.
So we've aged a little bit. Narration's back. We've got the explanation of that frame. Sort of an explanation of why... Um, excuse me, the time transition. But also now we're in part three, and that's why you can get away with not having parts, uh, not having his narration in a lot of part two. Aged a little bit more in the makeup. Again, very grown up for 1947, 46. <laughs> and I do have to point out that they comment on... Um, The, the police officer comments on mom having a distinction. It, it sets him up as, as not like Elliot who um, doesn't have one. Our present action just hit 10 years. So in part three, mom is the, the lead, which is, or the protagonist in some ways. Not in some ways, in, in a certain way of thinking about the term. Of, he's the focus, the, the, the story's told through his um, perspective.
describing her with her throat cut, of course, um, is very vivid and helps the fact she's only in six scenes. I can't remember what happens in the um, interval uh, in the year after the fight in the cafe. Um, it's in the novel, I'm sure, but I don't remember. This could be different. Just hit the policeman with effectiveness. And so we're ending with Uncle Elliot and just like we opened with him. Now we're closing the door on Sophie, right? And the grand party has now become just this. So dying Elliot is a little bit nicer.
so much sympathy for such a jerk. Very good scene. Just Lamar Trotty's script once again. Average number of people per scene in this movie is, I'm guessing, three. Is that David with a fig leaf? That's David with a fig leaf. Ah, uh, the French Riviera, where people just hop into... Window. Elsa Lancaster, everybody. Bride of Frankenstein. I'm. I think she's in witness for the prosecution, right?
just again Trotty's script. I don't know if this is in the novel. I can't imagine it. It's so light and just perfectly acted by Elsa Lancaster. And the way that now we've established that Tyrone Power is devastatingly handsome and charming is is just a wonderful transition. And there, the priest just sums up what the what the viewer thinks about Elliot. That he's basically okay. He's just obnoxious on the surface. I love how the butler um, kisses the the bishop's ring. I sort of remember in Of Human Bondage there being something about the afternoon when uh, Philip Carey's growing up. Gray's going to make good. <laughs> oh, with the crown there and everything, I'm sorry I wasn't talking, but you really cannot uh, be distracted from Clifton Webb's performance in this. Why is Larry leaving? Gray's going back to America. He could stay with Isabel. We just got all that in 40 seconds. Code or no code. Not even 40 seconds. That was probably 20 seconds. 
now that she's got Elliot's money, there's just so much un unbridled evil. That's not David. That's what's his face, isn't it? It's a uh, Dave. Yeah, it is. That's David, isn't it? David and Goliath. That's David. I think he had a hat on too. See, this would read really fast in the book, even if Trotty's just directly lifting her dialogue, which I don't remember if he is. It would read really fast in the book. In the movie, you get the Gene Tierney performance too. And all the the, the weight of her choices in the role coming in now. And then you've got the way Mom's directing it, or I'm sorry, the way Goulding's directing it. How it's pinging back and forth between the characters. And look how slick Larry is now after... After Sophie's died... And he was trying to explain this to her and to us in the first scene. He's still being selfless in this. (sighs) 
there's still this noble aspect to her. And she gets that it's it's this perversion of Elliot's behavior. Golding's direction of the scene. Uh, look at that focus Arthur Miller's doing just on her face, not on her hands. Look at that. This must have been amazing to see on an actual movie theater and not a TV or a computer screen. And there we go. Boom. He was going to walk out. He was going to let it go this whole time. And then she just tried to, well, I mean, in some ways she just tried to talk to him on what she saw as his level. It's human uh, frail, not frailty, it's a human defect in him that's still there. Makes him a hero. But, philosophically speaking, oh, that drunk butler. I love how much younger Jean Tierney seems than she did when we first meet her again with the kids. There's like a mix of Is this all one shot? It can't be. Should have been paying attention. See, there you go. It's all Sophie's fault. Ugh. See, just look at what Trotty and Goulding are able to do. 
so many constraints and they're able to do all of that. And is Isabel gonna be better? Possibly not. Nope, she's not. She didn't learn anything. She's a child again. Gobi Desert, I love it. So, she's secretly evil, but she wants to feel good, whereas Elliot was secretly good, but wanted to be perceived as evil. And we go out on the film's worst uh, background painting. Other than that, we're doing good. Um, yep, Cecil Humphreys is the holy man. And that was, uh, The Razor's Edge. Sorry, I fell off in the third act. I was a bit busy watching the movie. But, uh, if you stuck through, thank you. Thanks to Cliff for suggesting this one. I probably wouldn't have thought of it on my own. Certainly not for this first season of Stop Button Favorites. And so for next month, we are going to do, and for next month, I'm going to be talking about Man of Steel, which is a, sort of a knee-jerk selection, not anywhere near as good as uh, The Razor's Edge. But I'll be talking about that in a month. Thanks for listening. This has been Stopped Buttons. This has been Stop Button Favorites, Episode 2, for March 20th, 2015. Talked about The Razor's Edge, directed by Edmund Goulding for 20th Century Fox. This has been Andrew. Thanks for listening.